Hello and welcome to episode 13 of The Lawdown. I am Sarah Chilton, a partner at CM Murray, and I'm with my colleague Beth Hale, who is also a partner at CM Murray. And we are in the middle of August in London, in the middle of a heat wave. So that has driven me at least into the office for some days this week. And we'll touch in uh, later episodes on the various different issues that arise around returning to work in the middle of a global pandemic. But for now, we wanted to touch on a few issues that have been live in the UK press this week, and in fact, for the whole of the month. And one of those that we want to kick off with relates to the A-level results that come out this week. And then we're also going to talk about the quarantine rules that have been introduced for um, people returning from various different countries into the UK. We're going to talk about the PPE scandal, which has been widely reported. Um, And if we have time, we might just touch on a few uh, examples of wrongdoing that we've seen highlighted in the press. But to kick off, Beth and I have been chatting about the A-level results and really in the context of how that might impact diversity and actually diversity as that goes through the working careers and lives of those people who are getting the results right now and whether in fact if you have issues with diversity at A-level results stage, you in fact impact the pipeline for diversity into a number of different professions Beth, what have you been thinking yeah, about? So I, think, I think there are a number of issues around the, the A-level results. Um, the, the first thing is that, that what happened, for those who don't know, and this is a, very, this is a simplification of, of a quite a complex process, is that A-level results, because they could, people couldn't do the exams because of coronavirus, um, what happened was that schools and teachers gave sort of predicted grades or assessed grades um, for their students and those were then put through a kind of algorithm essentially um, and a huge number of them ended up being downgraded from the the grades that the teachers had awarded awarded them and the algorithm took into account past performance of the particular school which um, you know, you may think has some logic, but actually seems to me as kind of baking in uh, an inequality. So that if you look at actually the statistics that that um, private schools results that their, their their results are better than they have been in previous years. Um, uh, so a lot of state school results are also slightly better than they were in previous years, but not nearly as much better as, as private school results. And I think there's a real issue around social mobility and diversity. And you might say, well, it's one year. Does it matter? But, you know, each of these people is an individual and, you know, it's having a real impact on university admissions. What the French have done in contrast is opened up 10,000 extra university places. Um, they have... Um, rounded up rather than rounded down on results and they it seems to me a much more kind of logical approach that they're just going to have more people going to university this year well you know these people the kids having doing their a-levels now or not doing their a-levels have had a really disadvantaged year anyway they've lost the end of their education they've lost a really sort of seminal moment of their lives and it seems to me that if we ended up giving them a, you know giving them a boost rather than a, um, a downgrading in their a-level results what you know what what would be the problem with that I just and it feels to me that actually losing diversity at this stage so you know a, a year of 18 year olds who um where more advantaged kids are going to university and the less advantaged kids are not going to university will have an, an ongoing impact on society and on uh careers for those people going forward I can rant more about it if you like. <laughs> I suppose it's not just sort of socioeconomic issues, but they are often so linked to issues such as racial diversity as well. That, 
you know, it's just going to cause that lasting impact and reinforce those issues that we have been discussing over the last few months in particular. Um, yeah, and I think absolutely, and I think you know that it comes down to the, the those socioeconomic issues and race race issues are so interlinked, and you know that there will be the the families where kids have been downgraded are often the ones who. Um, you know, if they're, they're from a disadvantaged background already, and then they may not have the means or the will or the contacts to fight those decisions. It's, it's you know, it's, it's a sort of spiral of, um, and it's just growing that that gap in achievement and that gap in equality in, in sort of um, educational achievement. But then that will lead to a gap in in career achievement as well. And I think it's really problematic. Yeah. You know, I think they're saying, well, they, some people can sit their exams again, but it just isn't quite the same as doing it. You know, particularly if people were hoping to go to university in October, mm. sitting your exams in October isn't going to help. And there's you a out. cost to sitting exams as well if you want to sit it. If you and, and there's a cost to an appeal process. There's a time, the time that it takes, and you know, you need the support of the school to appeal, and it's it's not, you know, it's not straightforward. Unsatisfactory, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I suppose there's probably a theme to this episode, which is that most of the things we'll be discussing don't necessarily paint the government in a particularly good light. Um, that was obviously a government decision and the way that they handled exams. And the you know, Scottish government came under fire for similar reasons as well. Last week, we've got GCSE results coming out next week and um, you know, no doubt further stories and horrible situations where we find out about people who have been downgraded way below what their expectations were. Um, I suppose at least with GCSEs, it doesn't necessarily directly affect their university entrance, but it will affect lots of other things for them as well. Um, the other thing the government have been up to do is they have been uh, putting in place quarantine rules for various different countries for people who are returning to the UK or visiting the UK. And they initially had a, com- a list of countries where people could return or travel from those countries to the UK without quarantine. That list was quite long and notably included most European countries. Portugal wasn't on the list, but initially Spain was on the list. And then controversially, a few weeks ago, with very little notice, four hours notice, the government uh, reintroduced quarantine for travellers from Spain. And that caused a huge issue for a lot of people who were in Spain, who had thought that they would be able to get away and get back and not quarantine, and who were due to come back and suddenly had to quarantine for 14 days. And the impact that that was going to have on their work was quite significant in a number of cases. Just uh, this week, the government have announced that they're adding France to the list, along with a number of other countries, uh, including Netherlands and Malta um, and a number of other places. But France is the one that will affect, there's estimated to be half a million British tourists or visitors in France at the moment. And they are all, I think at the moment, trying to travel back before the quarantine rules come into effect. So we're recording this on Friday the 14th and they come into effect on Saturday at 4am on the 15th. So lots of people today having a very stressful journey across France. And I think the reason it affects a lot of people is because a lot of people, including I think Beth and I, have both escaped separately to France, thinking, well, it's a way to go on a holiday without having to face flying, which, you know, a lot of us think potentially is an unnecessary risk, whereas if you can drive in your car, go on the Eurotunnel, for example, and stay in your car, then it feels less of an issue. So it will affect a number of people. But I suppose the question is, what does that mean for workers? And 
the reality is that if someone is returning from a country and they need to quarantine, they can't go to work for 14 days. So unless they can work from home, they are going to have to not work. And a lot of employers won't pay them for not working. And they're not entitled to statutory sick pay in those circumstances. Yeah, exactly. And they're very unlikely to be entitled to contractual sick pay because I I don't think I've ever come across a contractual sick pay policy that would cover this sort of situation. One, because it's just not a situation that we've ever had before. But two, just even if we thought about it, it's unlikely that an employer would want to be that generous under their sick pay policy. So the likelihood is most employees are going to be facing a choice of either taking it as annual leave, which would be paid, but would use up their annual leave. And that would only be if they have enough leave and also if the employer agrees it, or they'll be taking it as unpaid leave, um, which will have a huge impact for a number of people um, who, you know, well, they've just obviously gone on holiday thinking they were able to come back and come back to work. A number of those people might not have been working for the whole time that there's, um, you know, been locked down. So it could be uh, really difficult for a lot of people. And then I know a lot of people might say, well, they went on holiday, they knew the risks. Um, but, you know, we have just come out of a really long period of, of lockdown and it's been really tough for a lot of people. And a lot of um, people have had challenges, whether that's been health of themselves, of their families or childcare or their work or stress around, uh, you know, a number of different things. So, you know, you can have sympathy with people, I think, who thought, I just want, you know, a week or two away in a different environment. And... Um, but I think the other slightly more worrying issue that crops up with this is whether or not those people could be dismissed. And there's certainly been some discussion anecdotally that some employers might threaten dismissal or disciplinary action for people who don't come to work. And there's been some uh, discussion, certainly uh, one radio station was suggesting that employees and employers were just going to ignore the rules altogether so that people could come to work um, and that the employer would be complicit in that. Um, I mean, do you think if an employer dismisses somebody because they can't uh, come to work for 14 days, is it fair? There are two very different situations, aren't they? One is if someone goes to a country knowing that on the return, on their return, they will have to quarantine. So if you leave for France now, knowing that on your return, you'll have to quarantine, and that means you can't go to work for 14 days. I think, um, you know, you go into it with your eyes open, you know what you're doing and uh, if you haven't had that discussion with your employer and then you just don't turn up to work for 14 days and you can't work from home, I think, you know, there is a there is an argument around to be had there around, you know, you're taking responsibility for that. And if that means that you can't work, you either, you know, take it as unpaid or as holiday. But you ought to be having that discussion with your employer. And I think if you haven't had that discussion and you do it without, uh, without any, you know, without talking to your employer, then I think, you know, potentially it's it's an unauthorised absence for two weeks. Potentially, yes, that might be fair. I think it's very different if you're already there and you've, did, you know, you've gone to a country where you didn't think you would have to quarantine. Um, I mean, obviously, everybody, everybody who has been away this summer did that with knowing that there was some risk. Having said that, I think if you went thinking that you wouldn't have to quarantine and then you it is announced while you're away, then I think it's much harder to dismiss fairly if there is, you know, for someone who has over two years service, I think it's very hard to say that that would be a fair dismissal because what have they done wrong? You yeah, know, make the good point for someone who has over two years service and that's the risk area for a lot of employees will be that they might not have two years service 
or they might not have unfair dismissal protection because they are, in fact, a worker and not an employee. So, you know, yeah. the economy, for example. And these people may be dismissed. And, you know, we've given quite a lot of thought to whether or not there is any remedy for those people. And, you know, there may be some scope to, uh, you know, look into some really kind of complicated, untested areas of employment law. But on the face of it, there appears to be very little that those people are likely to be able to do. Yeah, there's there's this whole area around if you're um, not going to work because of a health and safety concern or a fear or a concern, not a fear, sorry, a concern of serious or imminent danger to your health that, um, that then, you know, but that is, it's not clear to me that quarantining because the government has told you to quarantine is, is fits into that kind of category. Because the reason you're not attending. Yeah, the yeah. reason you're not attending is because you're complying with the government order, not because you actually have a concern about your health and safety or that of your colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the problem with all of this, and, you know, it's, it's something we've talked about a lot in relation to everything with the coronavirus crisis, is that none of it, the law isn't, wasn't written for this kind of situation. And, um, you know, it, it, it it's not made to deal with it and therefore it's unclear how it will deal with it and there will be you know there will be cases coming out of this where people have been dismissed or have been subject to discipline or you know and and I think you know it remains to be seen what view the tribunals will take but I I my view is that if you have gone somewhere and the quarantine was announced while you were there and therefore you know there was nothing you could have done about it I think it's very hard to say that that is anything which would warrant dismissal by an employer. And despite the fact that statutory sick pay isn't payable in these circumstances, it's worth just saying that it, it is payable for people who are self-isolating. But um, is it, there's a couple of interesting points on that. So I was looking into the statutory sick pay rules recently for something else. And, um, you know, we've known throughout this whole period that the rate of sick pay is low compared to the rate that most people get paid. And that's a problem. And the main problem there is that it disincentivizes compliance with the self-isolation requirements. So if you are uh, phoned up by contact tracers and told to self-isolate, or if you think you might have symptoms, but you're not that sure, or if you're waiting for a test result, if you are about to lose two weeks' pay and you're already literally just surviving day-to-day on the pay that you get, and dropping your pay down to £95 a week, which is the statutory sick pay, uh, pay limit or rate, is going to be really, really tough. And that's a really difficult decision, I think, for the government to expect people to make. So, you know, to put the um, financial security uh, of your family, potentially the ability to put food on the table, versus, um, you know, the health of of actually, you know, the wider population. But, you know, for that individual person, they, they're faced with a really difficult decision. And the 95 pounds a week rate, if someone was working a 35-hour week on the minimum wage, it's about a third so, you know, if you've got a minimum wage worker, that's a substantial drop. And that's minimum wage. That doesn't even yeah. take into account people that are... are yeah. No, I think there's, there's um, been a lot of call for the government to increase statutory sick pay for these purposes. But also yeah. in relation to the quarantine issue, there have been a lot of calls um, for the government to, you know, cover people's wages if they have to yeah. quarantine in those circumstances, particularly for people who are already there. So have, as I say, sort of gone into it not knowing that they would have to quarantine on the way back. And I think, you know, it, it's it, if they really want to improve compliance, because I think the issue is that people, as you say, if, if they stand to lose their livelihood, even if that's only for two weeks, you know, that's a really significant issue for a lot of people. Um, that, that people the, the quarantine 
have to say the quarantine rules are backed up by by criminal sanctions, so you can be fined for not complying. But um, it's also worth saying that the enforcement is obviously not straightforward, and um, that you know who knows how much the government will actually be enforcing it. But it, you know, it, it's, it's serious stuff because it's backed up, as I say, by criminal legislation. So it's. There's been a call um, for, as you say, review of sick pay, but also um, tied into that, you know, flexible furloughs. So there's a huge concern that um, the government actually should be actually paying more sick pay and extending the furlough scheme longer to really try and balance that against public health. So, you know, by stopping furlough and by keeping sick pay at a low rate, uh, there's been a suggestion that they are potentially risking public health because people just won't comply with, with things, yeah. uh, with requirements. So it's a really difficult issue. But I think our our view, or I mean, my personal view is that sick pay should be higher. Um, and I think you probably share that view. Yeah, I think it's drop, yeah. And it's, and it's worth saying, just for completeness before we move on, that, that sick pay also is only available to certain employees so and workers. So you need to earn £120 a week to qualify. Now, the way that that's calculated is usually on the basis of an uh, eight-week average before the day that you become sick. There's some different rules around that. But, you know, if someone has been being paid lower now than they might normally get paid because of coronavirus, say they're on a drop in hours or, you know, they're a zero-hours worker and they've had less work, then, you know, they may not even qualify for sick pay and that doesn't even get into self-employed people who don't qualify for sick pay at all. So it's not just the rate, it's the kind of holes in the system that really incentivise people to keep working even if they are sick. Yeah. Um, moving on to the next uh, government-related story, um, we thought it was worth just quickly touching on the PPE issue. So uh, no doubt many of you will have been aware that the Good Law Project, along with some others, are bringing a judicial review against the government into PPE. Um, now, the background to this is that the government did to acquire PPE, and on the 27th of March, it opened its portal and it invited tenders for that. And they received a number of tenders and apparently have spent uh, £15 billion pounds on PPE. Um, and three of the biggest awards of contracts through PPE are companies who specialise in pest control, a confectionery wholesaler, and a private fund, which is owned through a tax haven. So, I mean, it doesn't take a specialist in PPE to think, well, why are these companies being awarded PPE? It's a bit um, curious as to, you know, why they might be uh, dealing with PPE and providing PPE to the government. And no one really knows, and the government haven't uh, given much information on this. So what's happened is there's a legal action being brought under judicial review to find out more information and to effectively ask for details and to question those decisions of the government to award those contracts. And so that's the background. And obviously, I think we'll hear a lot more about it. But it It also is interesting to note that on the 31st of July, the government announced a review into the concept of judicial review. So they've launched an independent review into administrative law and they asked an expert panel to examine the need for potential reforms for judicial review. Now, judicial review has been used in a number of high-profile cases over the last few years, most notably the judicial review against the decision to prorogate Parliament, um, in which the government um, obviously didn't come across very well, um, and a number of other high-profile judicial reviews 
Employment lawyers will obviously be familiar with the judicial review into employment tribunal fees, um, which was eventually successful thanks to the continued hard work of Unison. And I think it's a really important remedy that it allows people to hold the government and government institutions and state institutions to account for their decisions and their actions. And, 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 you know, if it is under threat and if the government do seek to reform it or limit the scope of it, I think that could be a really worrying trend. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's a really important um, sort of protection measure, a sort of check and balance to what the government do, any government. And, you know, we're not seeking to be kind of political here. I think, you know, you know, just that it's really important in a democratic society that the government is held to account for decisions that it makes. Um, and so a, a, any sort of real limitation being put on that would be would be a big deal, I think, and ought to be done extremely cautiously. Yeah, I think in the meantime, we all wait with bated breath to find out exactly why a confectionery company got awarded PPE contracts. I mean, I didn't know as a law firm we were eligible to even apply for the contracts. I mean, they're diversified. Absolutely. Um, well, lots of joking. people are making masks, aren't they? So I'm being flippant, but lots of people are making masks because of uh, yeah. fashion. I feel like I should have made a mask, but I, I just bought one. I feel quite bad about that. But, you know, also supporting businesses that are making yeah, exactly. masks. Exactly, exactly. Um, I, I, a couple of final points. There's two high-profile misconduct cases that have been flagged in the press. Um, first one uh, relates to the CEO of McDonald's. This was a story earlier in the year, but um, McDonald's are now... Sorry, which we covered in an earlier law down, I think, about um, relationship policies and um, that he was in yeah. breach of his relationship policy and that's why he was exited. But he was paid at the time a huge sum of money um, some of it in shares, but some of it deferred. But uh, he was—he got a significant exit package in spite of the fact that he was—he he was sort of qualified as a good lever for the purposes of the McDonald's um, exit package um, because he agreed. But now they're trying to get the money back. Now they're trying to recoup all that money from him because they've discovered that he was not just in breach of their relationship policy once. So they had a very have a very draconian relationship policy, which says that no one. Um, basically, you can't have a, a relationship with anyone internally, um, with other staff. And uh, what they have now say they have discovered is that he had relationship, not just the relationship for which um, he was dismissed at the time, but that there were also he also had a number of other relationships in the in the last couple of years of his uh, of his employment, and they're trying to recoup the significant sums of money from him because of that under his settlement agreement. And it's not unusual in our experience in any event in settlement agreements to have the ability to recoup some or all of the money in the event that you discover wrongdoing that would have entitled you to terminate someone's contract um, in the UK. It's obviously a US case, so we don't know how that will play out. Staying in the US, and final comment, um, there's also been news that Anthony Lewandowski, who was senior engineer at Google and allegedly stole, well, I say allegedly, but he's been convicted, so I'm not sure it's alleged anymore. Uh, he loaded more than 14,000 Google files onto his laptop before he left the firm, and then he went to Uber. And he has been subject to a custodial sentence um, because he stole trade secrets. So pretty serious consequences of stealing trade secrets and I suppose a reminder to executives and particularly I think people working in those 
development roles and in really kind of pushing the boundaries of things around AI, where these things are really the difference between that business kind of taking over that sector or not. And that, you know, if you steal some files, it's not just, you know, someone will wrap you on the knuckles, you might get sacked and might be sued or you might be sued yeah, you might go to prison. Um, yeah. and uh, you know, well, it's pretty extreme. I mean, this is again a US case, and it's a pretty extreme example of you know something where he was working on something that is basically the future of, you know, it's an incredibly high-profile, incredibly sensitive um, uh, information around what Google were doing on um, uh, driverless cars, and I think it, you know, it's 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 quite particular on its facts, but I think it is still a, a warning to people who think that they can sort of just take property from their employer of it. and essentially if you're taking property that belongs to your employer even even if it's a file that people might not think of as a sort of electronic file that people might not think of as property in that way that it's you know don't do it it's my short message <laughs> well that brings us to the end of uh, the things we want to discuss today. We will be back, hopefully, in the next few weeks with another episode of The Lawdown. Um, If you have any questions about any of the things we've covered, then do get in touch with us. You can email us at info at cm-murray.com. If you like this episode, please, please do rate and review us on iTunes and any other platforms so that more people can find us and can listen to us. And if you have any stories that you want us to cover or any issues that you want us to talk about in a bit more detail, then let us know. Again, info at cm-murray.com.